Brother Randall has asked that we mark number 218, and we'll use that at the proper time as the close of the lesson this morning. The words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 4.16 set the tone for us as we begin our, the lesson part of our service this morning. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. The God of heaven is interested in providing the help and assistance that you and I so desperately need in this life, and He makes it available to us if we will approach and come to Him in the way that His Word indicates and dictates that we must do. As mentioned already, it is a blessed opportunity that we each have been granted today at the start of this new week to assemble on this first day of the week, and it's our sincere and earnest prayer that all that is done and said will be encouraging, edifying, and uplifting to each of us. And it is with that in mind that we consider a lesson entitled, Only Two. Only Two. As we begin the lesson, some introductory thoughts to prompt our thinking concerning perhaps what is an interesting title. Focus on the matter of decisions, choices that we each make in life. Isn't it amazing from time to time how many choices and how many decisions there are to be made? Some decisions and some questions that require answer are awfully simple, and the answer, quite frankly, isn't all that large a matter. What you may have for lunch today is not that critical in the eternal scheme of things. Whether or not you perhaps do something that might be on an agenda tomorrow may not well be all that significant. But isn't it true that there are some choices in life that really are that monumental and really are that important? About the middle part of that slide, some of those decisions, what might you or I do for a career? What might you or I do in terms of selecting one to marry? What might you or I do in terms of obeying the gospel? Now those are matters that can impact our life here and can certainly have a tremendous significance toward the fullness of our eternal life as well. Amazingly enough, though many choices in this life are such that there are many numbers of things from which to choose. Walk down the aisle at Walmart, how many kinds of cereal are there? I haven't counted them, but it seems like there's bound to be in the hundreds. I don't know if there's that many or not. Go to the car lot, how many kinds of cars are there? Hundreds, one from which one can choose. But isn't it amazing that according to the teaching of God's Word, He has restricted the number of ultimate matters to only two. And that led me to title the lesson the way that I did. Only two. For the rest of the lesson this morning, I would invite you to look at, with me into the Word of God and notice how that on so many occasions God has drawn the number of choices, the number of significant matters down to only two. He has made things in that sense pretty simple, hasn't He? In fact, as we begin that, let's start looking at them one by one. And as we ask about the nature of only two, I believe we'll be led to understand some of the greatest of all matters to be found in the Word of God. First of all, might you and I never forget the fact there are only two great rulers. And every single person is serving beneath the rulership of one or the other of these rulers. There is no third option. There's only two. First of all, there is the one recognized as Jesus. In 1 Timothy 6 verse 15, the inspired apostle, as he wrote on that occasion, Paul on that occasion, 
He made reference to the fact, speaking of Christ, He is the one and only potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords. That word potentate is an exceedingly interesting term. It literally in Greek means ruler or sovereign. In other words, Paul wrote there is this leader, this sovereign, this ruler. His name is Jesus. We appreciate then that there are those who serve beneath His rulership and they follow Him. But there is another king, another ruler, if you please. He's recognized as Satan. Look at with me at some of these verses that make reference to him. In Ephesians 2, verse 2, as Paul wrote to the congregation in Ephesus, it was to them that he said, Speaking of Satan, he is the prince of the power of the air. He is a prince meaning he occupies an element of authority. He occupies some means of rulership. And if we ask where, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 reminds us that he is the God of this world. And aren't there so many who choose to follow him? Aren't there so many who make that terrible decision rather than following the Christ to follow, in fact, the devil, follow Satan? And in Jude verse 6, the position that he occupied at one position or at one time, he of course was cast out in that rebellion of heaven. And now he seeks to tempt you and to tempt me. I suppose as we give thought to these two great rulers, the question then is this one. Are you serving Christ? Am I serving Christ or are we serving the devil? The question is such a pertinent one because of that last two. We cannot have it both ways. Jesus Himself spoke in Matthew 6, 24, Ye cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll cling to one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God in mammon. And later we read in Matthew 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. He that in fact sows not scatters. You and I then need to realize the fact that we cannot occupy both kingdoms at the same time. We cannot serve both masters at one and the same time. Either we're serving under the leadership of the master, namely Christ, or else we're serving beneath the devil. Those are the only two choices. But right along with that is another set. There are only two great kingdoms. That's all. Let's look at the first one. We might note that every single individual is a member, a citizen of one of these kingdoms. On the one hand, there is the kingdom of Christ. Referenced in Colossians 1 verse 13, in which Paul said, Speaking of God Himself, who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. There you'll notice Paul referenced the kingdom of His dear Son. And the folks in Colossae, those members of the church, were in fact members of that wonderful and that mighty kingdom. That's one of the kingdoms also referenced in Colossians 1 verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. That's speaking of the Christ. That He in fact has all the preeminence and this one kingdom, which is His kingdom, is truly one of those to which each person has opportunity to be a part. Many other passages, such as Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19, reference it. Jesus on that occasion said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The kingdom was thus specified there, related to the church. And the Lord promised that He'd build it, and we now notice it has come into existence. Are you a member of it faithfully? Am I a member of it faithfully? That is one kingdom. Look at the other one. It's the kingdom of darkness. In that passage in Colossians 1.13, wasn't it true? Again, Paul said, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. As opposed to that kingdom of light, that kingdom of Christ, there is this kingdom of darkness. The very name indicates the nature of it, doesn't it? It's filled with that which is unwholesome. It's filled with that which covers the truth. It's filled with that in which the truth of God is hidden or concealed. There is this kingdom of darkness. A number of passages tell us, such as this one in John 8 verse 12, Jesus, as He spoke to those of His day, He very powerfully and dramatically said that I am the light of the world. He that followeth Me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. You and I have already noticed that there is the kingdom of Christ. It's the one where the light is found. Everywhere else is the kingdom of darkness. God has, in fact, drawn the consideration to only two choices. One last passage in Galatians 1.4, it is the Christ who has allowed us to be delivered from this present evil age, this present evil world, and moved into a kingdom in which the light and the glory of God is to be found, obeyed, and seen. Question, which kingdom are you a citizen of, and which one am I a citizen of? Are you and I citizens of this kingdom of darkness, or are we citizens in the kingdom of the Christ? There are only those two choices. Which one shall it be? At the proper time today, if you need to allow yourself to be entered into or added to that kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Christ, we'll express more in a few moments as to how that's done. But for right now, let's notice another set of considerations. There's only two perspectives in life. Believe it or not, only two unfolded in the Word of God. Every single individual, including you and me, chooses one of these pathways, one of these matters as descriptive of the character of our life. First of all, one could walk by faith. Hebrews 11 verse 1 reminds us that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And five verses later, the inspired writer noted, "...but without faith it is impossible to please Him." For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Faith, the lovely wonder of its presentation in the Word of God. Maybe it is that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, 7 that brings that fully before us right now. Paul wrote, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Thus we have the walkway through life that we call faith. It directs us and prompts us to appreciate the relative truth of all that God has revealed by nature of the fact that He said it. We understand that though men may question it, some may doubt it, many others rebel against it, but still the truth of God stands absolutely firm, supreme, and a guaranteed matter. For it's still the case that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished into all good works. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 16. On the other hand, aside from the walk of faith, there is the possibility of walking by sight. That is to say, basing one's life, one's decisions, one's choices, one's matters upon what one sees and what the physical mind might consider to be a guaranteed matter. We walk by faith and not by sight. What's true about those that walk by sight? In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul on that occasion wrote, that those who walk by sight put their trust and confidence in what the physical eye can experience and behold. But it's true, isn't it? This physical body is perishing day by day. But the inward man is renewed day by day. And in verse 18 it says, We look and walk toward that which is eternal, not that which is only temporary. The question then that comes to you and me here might point us back to old Naaman in 2 Kings, the fifth chapter. Naaman was afflicted with leprosy. And he learned, however, about a young girl, a damsel in Israel, who had the means whereby, or from her, that there was a prophet in Israel that could, in fact, lead to his healing. He came, and when Elisha, in fact, only sent him word that he was to dip in the Jordan seven times, Naaman was unsatisfied with that message. He wanted something that had to do with sight. I want him to come out, speak with me, hold his hand over me, and perform some momentous ceremony. All he wants me to do is dip in a muddy river seven times. You see, he wasn't walking by faith. And he almost wasn't healed of leprosy either. But thankfully his servants reasoned enough with him and said, If he had not asked you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? And so he did go and dip seven times in the Jordan River. And when he came up the seventh time, he was no longer a leper. When faith finally prompted him to act, oh, what a transition it made. And might we suggest that if faith is allowed to act in our life as we faithfully respond to the Lord's commandments, oh, what a transition it shall make. Walking by faith and not by sight. Which is it for you and me? There's only those two choices. You'll notice that there's something else to note. There are only two classifications of life. Although there are now about 7 billion people living upon this earth, there are only two classifications of life. You might ask, what are they? Let's notice these passages. Because every single individual fits into one or the other of these categories. First, there are those that are classified as obedient. Yes, indeed, those that are classified as obedient. Notice with me the reading of Romans 6, beginning in verse 16. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were thus baptized into faith? That's beginning actually in that same chapter, verse number 3. But as he reaches verses 14 on to verse 18, he describes the matter that's listed for us on this occasion as obedient. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. And being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. There is to be noted, isn't there, in verse 16, 
those to whom Paul wrote, they were either obedient and thus servants of righteousness, or they were disobedient and thus the servants of sin. Those were the only two choices. We thus have before us the matter of obedience. Are you obedient? Am I obedient? Or do we try to make excuses for our disobedience? But God, I didn't because I can't. God, I won't because of this, that, or the other reason. Obedience doesn't make excuses. It simply does what the Lord has said. And isn't it true in verse 17, he said, But thanks be unto God, you were the servants of sin, but now you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered you. There was a time those in Rome were servants of sin, but Paul was so thankful to God. Those days were in their past. They were now obedient unto God and thus freed from sin. Notice the other possibility. If one classification is obedient, that means the other is disobedient. I'd invite you to notice that really Paul highlighted it there, but other verses also put that before us. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, Paul wrote, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven in mighty with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Paul wrote that there's coming an occasion in which the great Christ shall be revealed from heaven, and He's coming back in flaming fire. To what end? He says to take vengeance. On who? To those that didn't obey the gospel. What a frightful exposition. Those who are disobedient, those who did not obey, there listed on that says will be the ones reaping the wrath of the coming Christ. As you think about that matter of disobedience, notice even in the Old Testament, that very thought is put before us in Hosea 14, verse number 9. The closing verse to that book the inspired prophet on that occasion said, Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Prudent and he shall know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. And the just shall walk in them, but the transgressor shall fall therein. The transgressor is the one that's disobedient, that will not follow the things God has revealed, and as a result of that will receive the terribleness of his wrath. Which classification are you in today, my friend? Are you amongst the obedient are you numbered amongst the disobedient? There are only two choices, and it's left to you and to me. What about another consideration? There are only two categories in life. You might notice that the last two, as well as this one, all join together in a harmonious way. Every single person is one or two of these. First of all, the righteous. You might well expect that the obedient is in other passages termed the righteous, but isn't it amazing that every single individual is either righteous or cataloged as the, as the wicked? In Luke 1, verse number 6, we have that example of the parents of John the Baptist. They walked in all the commandments of the Lord blameless. They were hailed by the very writer as those that were righteous, and as another consideration, there is that beautiful passage of 2 Corinthians 5.21. In fact, that one speaks of those today, such as you and I, who can be reckoned as the righteous. 
For God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that you and I might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is the righteous, but there's also the sad spectacle of the wicked. Look at some of these verses. In Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. There's only two choices based on that psalm. There's the ungodly or wicked, and there's the righteous. As you think about the ungodly, wasn't it Paul who made reference to them in Romans 1, beginning in verse 16? It's especially noted in verse 17, "...the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God shall be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness." Which is it, my friend, for you and me? Are you wicked at this moment in life, or are you reckoned among the righteous? The choice is yours, and the choice is mine. What about another possibility of but two? What about the roadways through this life? We each understand that something, something tremendous begins at the time of conception. And then ultimately, about nine months later, birth is given, and at the time of the cradle, this baby is now upon earth. But there is coming a time, if the Lord delays His coming, that that baby shall meet its death. The end of its life will come. We're all marching toward that end, again, if God or if the Christ delays His coming. During that interval of time, from cradle unto grave, there are but two roadways through life that can be chosen. That's it. As remarkable as that number is, listen to how the Bible describes them. In Matthew 7, beginning in verse number 13, Jesus said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the way and wide is the way that leads into destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because narrow is the way, straight is the gate that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. There is thus a wide way that leads to destruction, and there's a narrow way that leads to life, and those are the only two things the Lord has mentioned. You and I might note then that one can be traveling on that wide way. It's that wide way that, of course, is easy to travel. It's the wide way that leads, in fact, to that eternal perdition and eternal ruin. But that is to be distinguished to that narrow way that's difficult to travel. It requires great intensity, diligence, and effort. But oh, how it leads to life. Which way are you traveling today? May we each be very honest with ourselves. Which way am I traveling? Are you walking on that wide way because it's easy? It's effortless? Because, in fact, it's so tremendously satisfying for many things in the flesh? Or are you setting aside the desires and the pleasures often the world has to offer and striving to walk along that narrow way that leads into everlasting life? There are only those two choices. As you give thought to the way that they're described, the Roman letter as well as First Peter highlights 
in fact, the distinction that one more time goes with them. Notice with me briefly in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse number 3. As Peter made reference to the fact that, according as he has given unto us all the greatness of his blessings and pleasures, he notes that we as the elect have in verses 4 and 5 the opportunity to look forward to a place reserved in heaven for you. It's undefiled, it fadeth not away. Is that the one to which we're marching? Or is it the other one? That one that's more frightful than perhaps we can even imagine. The one where, of course, God is not. The one where Jesus is not. The one that's filled with darkness and evil and all the gloom of all the centuries forevermore separated from the lovingness of God. Those two ways, one leads to life, but you notice that one leads to destruction. Surely no one in his or her right mind would travel knowingly that road to destruction, but yet countless thousands on this earth are choosing that path. And sometimes even those who are aware of what the Bible teaches still choose it. Oh, how what a foolish set of decisions. As you give thought to this sixth one we've looked at, that there are only two roads through life. It prompts us to a seventh one. One more set of two that you and I may consider there are only two foundations for a spiritual well-being. As you give thought to what they are, every single individual is building on one or the other of these foundations. Every single person. We each know what a tragedy it is for a builder to build something upon a foundation that's weak or a foundation that's unstable or a foundation that's unsuitable. But we also know that when built upon a strong, right, proper foundation, then there's every opportunity for the structure to be built on it to withstand everything that might be brought against it. Look at these two possibilities with me. There is that foundation that's described as a rock. Solid, firm, steady, unshakable, unmovable. This firmness of rock the Lord described, didn't He, in Matthew 7 beginning in verse 24. On that occasion, he said, he spoke about first this man who was wise. And he founded his house upon a rock. And the winds blew against it and the rains beat against it, but it stood because it was founded on a rock. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Thus, there is this foundation and how strong and steady and firm it is. Because didn't Jesus say, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee? Matthew 28, 20. And do we not read in Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6, that even there we must beware of covetousness and still never forget that it was again promised of us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you and I want a foundation that's founded that solidly? and a life that's built on it that's known for its goodness, its rightness, its uprightness and appropriateness. Contrast that to this other foundation, the one that's weak and on the shifting sands that are provided by the devil. I've listed for you that passage in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 5 where Paul said that our faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but on the things of God. Is your faith... On, on nothing more firm and steady than the wisdom of men? If so, your faith is on a shakable foundation. It's on a foundation that's not ready to meet the things that this life offers and certainly not ready for the day of judgment. 
in that passage in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul commended the church in Thessalonica partly because they founded themselves upon the faith that is in fact known as the Word of God. For the which cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Is that descriptive of you and me? Have we built our lives upon something as unchanging as this? Throughout the centuries, men have tried to change it. Some have burned it in a fire, and yet I'm still holding it. There have been other governmental leaders who have hated it, who have despised it, who have desired to in fact do away with it, but every one of them has failed. There have been those in life who have thought that this is nothing but a tragedy because they see in it that which restricts liberty and freedom. It doesn't let me do what I want to do. And yet they've all died and now ready to, they're not ready to meet God in judgment, the very one who's going to judge them by this book. In John 12 verse 48, in terms of the character of foundation, it says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Thus it would seem how critical it is that we live in accordance to this because it's going to serve as the standard. On to part number eight. There are only two kinds of death. Again, it may seem strange, but that's what the Bible teaches. Only two. You and I realize as we meander through the corridors of this life and come to the time of death that there are only two flavors or kinds of death. Revelation 14, 13 sets out one of them. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. What a blessedness it is to those who have died in the Lord. To that one who at the time of his death or her death was a faithful Christian... That person has died in the Lord and all the blessings, rewards, and favors of the New Testament are to be enjoyed forevermore. That, my friend, is a noble death, isn't it? What about those, though, who die not in the Lord? If one kind of death is to die in the Lord, what about the other one? You can well appreciate the sorrow and sadness that comes with this one. We read about it a moment ago in 2 Thessalonians 1. In verses 8 and 9, again, Paul wrote about those who did not obey the gospel. And they're the ones that are going to receive flaming fire from the Master. What a difference. On the one hand, those that died in the Lord are at rest, and they're blessed. But these who did not die in the Lord are not blessed, and they're not at rest. They're in torment because they did not prepare themselves to meet the God of heaven in judgment. What a frightening exposition. There are only two kinds of death. That allows us to draw this lesson to a close this morning with one final appreciation that there's only two possible destinations. That's it. Upon leaving this life, facing the Lord in judgment, there are only two places to which He will in fact make that final sentence. One is heaven. That place described in the Scriptures in language like this in John 14, beginning in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The beautiful climbs of heaven. 
glorious, radiant, brilliant, beautiful, sinless, and absolutely remarkable. But on the other hand, there is a place called hell. Jesus described it like this, a place where the worm dies not, fire is not quenched, a place of outer darkness, a place where neither God nor the sun is there, a place, in fact, described as a lake burning with fire and brimstone in Revelation 20, verse 10. To give thought to those two, we can close this lesson like this. There are only two possible states right now for you and me. Either you are saved or you're lost. Either I am saved or I am lost. If you are saved, then you have the blessedness of the first part of every one of these nine that we've listed. You're the obedient ones. You're the ones whose life is classified as righteous and noble. And you're the one that's a member of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Christ. And you're also that one who's following the Christ as your great ruler in life. But on the other hand, if you are lost, right now you're a child of the devil. You're following in the kingdom of darkness. You are following the devil himself. And the blessedness that goes with the home in heaven right now is not yours. This song of encouragement is going to be sung in just a moment. And if you, by giving thought to these things we've listed, find yourself on the negative side of them, today is the day to make a change. The fourth day of December, 2011, could be a monumental day for all eternity for you because this could be the day your name is written in the book of life and it remains there. If we could be of assistance to you in your obedience to the gospel of Christ this very day, in order to move from that state of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you must obey the gospel. You need to hear the word of the Lord. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You're required to repent of your sins, to confess the name of Christ as the Son of God, and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. Upon so doing, live faithfully until death, Revelation 2, verse 10. It is that that brings us to this thought, if you have not lived faithfully... Though once a faithful Christian, if at this point you know that you are not on the positive side of these nine, but you have lapsed back into the negative, why not come back to your first love today? A change could be wrought in you that will redound unto your great benefit here on earth and truly to your benefit forevermore. If we could help you in any way today by initial response or by prayer of rededication, We'd be honored to assist and to help and to do that while together we stand and while we sing.